Are you ready for a fright? Can you handle a scare? This is your home for all things horror. <laughs> Welcome to the Deadline Podcast with your host, Jay. Thank you for joining me for a new episode of Deadline. Tonight on Unsolved Mysteries, Relive the Tales. Is a cult responsible for the death of a high school student? Rogers Kane told his sister he was going to a hardware store. He never returned. And the death of a doctor is ruled suicide until evidence uncovered in a new autopsy reveals that he was murdered. Join me. Perhaps you may be able to help solve a mystery. On September the 8th, 1984, Kurt McFall, a 17-year-old high school student, drove from his home in Concord, California, across the Bay Bridge and into San Francisco. He told his father he was staying with a friend and would be home Sunday evening. Kurt never returned. On Monday, two bird watchers spotted a half-naked body on a remote beach below the cliffs of San Francisco Bay. Kurt McFall was dead. Kurt's father, Tom McFall, says he knew at once his son's death was no accident. Kurt told a friend of his that he was involved in some kind of satanic cult and that he wanted out, but he thought that they might try to kill him. He really feared for his life. It was murder. It needs to be investigated. There's no doubt in my mind that Kurt could have handled himself in that cliff area because he was an experienced mountain climber, and he was a diver. So, he would not have drowned in the water or fallen down the hill. In Kurt's room, Tom discovered a knife made from a deer's hoof, a necklace of stone and feathers, and drawings depicting witchcraft themes and violent fantasies. These seemed to prove that Kurt was leading a double life. The year before he died, Kurt had joined a group that enjoyed reliving medieval customs. They dressed in costumes and practiced sword fighting in a parking lot of an Oakland subway station. Around the same time, Kurt also joined another organization that initiated him into pagan religion. This new group frightened one of Kurt's old uh, high school friends. He later contacted Tom McFall and then began to fear for his own safety. He spoke on the condition that his identity did not be revealed. He stated, Gradually over a period of perhaps six months, his attitude towards other people changed dramatically. He kind of moved from just studying with an interest in medieval religion to actually adopting that religion as his. Kurt's guide into the pagan religion was Gabriel was named Gabriel who went by the ancient Welsh name now I might be butchering this name Caradoc this is a religion that also has an art a craft and one that has techniques that are at their essence magical I met Kurt because he had he had an interest in magic Kurt was bright and real curious about just about everything. Kurt's high school friend thinks Kurt 
got in too deeply or got too deeply involved. His involvement in this group can be compared to a drug addiction where you can begin thinking that you're you've got it under control and you take it to take it wherever you want but gradually you lose that sense of knowing when to stop until you're a junkie I do not make it in any, in any attempt to control people's lives people are free to come and go at their own discretion just as Kurt did if anything uh, the we have uh, we ha- that we have is uh, individuals taking control of their own lives. On Saturday, September the tenth, Kurt stayed over at Carlos' apartment. They had dinner, went to a movie, and around midnight, Kurt went swimming at the ocean beach, a few blocks from Carlos' home. According to Carlos, uh, Kurt had trouble sleeping and knocked on the, his door at a at, at about three in the morning. Kurt said that he was going back to the beach. Kurt was never seen alive again. Carlos thinks that Kurt's death was an accident. My best guess is simply that he took too many chances. He might have gone swimming in the ocean and been pulled by the undertow. He might have gone climbing on the cliffs at Land's End and slipped and fallen. Or any other number of other things. The following evening, Kurt's car was found abandoned on a golf course overlooking the ocean. There were a number of puzzling clues. Kurt's driver's license was on the floor. His car keys were on the seat. A $20 bill was in the glove compartment. The prized suit of armor which Kurt had made for sword fighting was missing from the trunk. There were also beer bottles scattered in and around the car. Tom at fall thinks the clues were staged. The car was to be has to be a phony scene that was set up because Kurt did not drink beer. That's also an inconsistent with the autopsy report that shows that there was no sign of alcohol or drugs in the body when it was re- recovered. So that looked very suspicious. At 10.15 the following morning, National Park Service lifeguards recovered Kurt's body. It was lying in a cove less than two miles from Carlos's apartment, just below the cliffs at the golf course where Kurt's car was found. Brian Cameron was one of the lifeguards. When we came upon the body, we noticed that it was fairly good in fairly good condition, fairly pale usually a sign of being in the water for an extended period of time. No obvious external trauma. He looked pretty clean, other than a few abrasions on the body, but nothing obvious. Kurt had no shoes, socks, or shirt. His back his back and shoulders were covered with cuts and abrasions. The belt, be, the belt he wore was missing its buckle. Chief Petty Officer Ron Wilton with the U.S. Coast Guard. With the facts that we have in this case, it's really anybody's guess as to where he actually entered the water, where he came from. My guess would be that uh, uh, that's all it is. is an, it's an educated guess. That he simply fell off the cliff. And that's what it appears to me. The coroner determined that Kurt uh, died from multiple... Uh, injuries 
and served blood loss and severe blood loss, but no one knows what caused those injuries. Perhaps Kurt died after stumbling over the edge, or perhaps he was pushed. The coroner ruled cause of death unknown, a determination un uh, unacceptable by atomic fall. He stated, I went to San Francisco Corner and said, what do you think happened to Kurt? And he said, I think the possible probable cause of Kurt's death is homicide. But he said that he didn't have enough to testify to that in a court of law. And so, and so he sent his ruling up to a homicide classified as unknown. I can't accept that, he said. The police investigated further, but found no reason to change the ruling from unknown to homicide. They declined to be interviewed for this story. Kurt's father continues to believe his son was murdered. He stated, Kurt may have uncovered something in the organization and may have indicated to people that he was going to expose this. And I feel that all of these things probably contributed to contributed to them wanting to do uh, to do away with Kurt Gabriel denies that he or his organization had anything to do with Kurt's death if I wanted to murder somebody the last person I would murder would be someone or somebody who is staying in my house and whose father knew that he was staying in my house I mean, the whole thing is stupid. Tom McFall hopes that someone will come forward with new evidence that could reopen the investigation. Case number two. On the afternoon of February 19, 1986, 61-year-old Rogers Kane told his sister that he was going to a local hardware store. His family never saw him again. The day after Rogers disappeared, he called a neighbor and told her he didn't feel well and he would not be going to work. Two days later, a private security company in an adjacent neighborhood spotted a man whom they believed to be Rogers Kane. The man appeared confused and gave them a phone number belonging belonging to Rogers uh, Rogers sister. When his sister arrived, Rogers had disappeared again. One month later, Rogers' car was found parked on a busy street 20 miles from his home. Remarkably, all his papers, his GI bill, the deed to his property, and his insurance policies as well as his glasses and false teeth were in the car. At a gas station next to Rogers' abandoned car, police learned that he had talked with a mechanic on the day after he disappeared. Detective Doug Haskin, Haskin stated, The person at the station told us that he was last seen walking from the station, kind of staggering, swaying that his speech was slurred and at the time we really felt that they may have suffered a he might have suffered a, a slight stroke causing some type of memory impairment he had a telephone he had a telephone credit card on him a telephone and a credit card on him 
when he was missing and the credit card was used on a number of occasions after he was last seen by the security company. The night after, the, uh, after this episode was broadcast, police received a call from a man in Kansas who believed he recognized uh, Rogers Kane as a local resident named Elmer Jackson. Acting on the caller's tip, police attempted to locate Elmer Jackson, only to discover he had disappeared. Within days, Rogers Kane's son flew to uh, Kansas and joined the police search. The search ultimately turned up to no information, and police were never able to establish if Elmer Jackson was indeed Rogers Kane. In 1995, Rogers Kane was declared legally dead. His disappearance remains unsolved. Our third case. On February 23, 1974, police were called to Los Angeles' home of Dr. Ted Losef. The call was made by his wife, Wilda, who told officers that her husband was armed. When the police arrived, Wilda uh, was outside the house with the housekeeper and Edward J., a family friend. Ted didn't answer the door, and there was no sign of him anywhere in the house. Finally, the garage, or the, or finally in the garage, officers found Ted's body in his car. The engine was running, and a hose connected to the tailpipe had been fed into the car's interior through a window. To authorities at the scene, the evidence of suicide was overwhelming, and there was no further investigation. No fingerprints were taken, no autopsy was performed, and no questions were asked. Zell, Zell Losef, is Ted's mother. They found him in his car, in his garage, she stated. They said it had to be suicide. It wasn't until a little later when this began to become so suspicious that I started to wonder about it. Of all the people in the world, Ted was not the one to take his life. Zell said that um, it became clear to her in a dream. I saw a garage filled with lots and lots of boat equipment and cartons of boxes, and I realized I was at Ted's garage, and I knew that to I knew that to put his car there, he had to move things that were in that garage. Ted had back surgery. It was impossible for him to do that physically. And then I saw this great big double old iron gates. In her dream, Zell remembered that the driveway gates were damaged and, and difficult to open. Because of that, Ted had always parked in front of the house. To Zell, the implications of the dream were clear and disturbing. She believed the suicide had been staged and that her son had been murdered. But Zell's suspicions alone were not enough to get the case reopened. She decided to track down her son's former housekeeper. Based on her sworn testimony at the coroner's inquest, she, stayed, uh, she said that on the day Ted died, she arrived at his, at his home at 10 a.m. Ted told her he was divorcing his wife, Wilda, and that she wouldn't be staying at the house anymore. But according to, to the housekeeper, around 2 p.m., Wilda showed up at the home. 
she parked her car and went upstairs right upstairs a few minutes later mary heard screaming and yelling soon after ted dragged wilda down the stairs wilda yelled to the housekeeper that ted had a gun but mary didn't see one in her own sworn testimony she stated and i said if you want me to continue working with you you'll have to talk to my husband so he paid me for my work and i got in my car and i drove down the street and there was miss uh Losef. and then she asked me if i could go if i could go if i could go with if she can go with me Blech. and i said well yes and then i drove home she kept insisting that dr uh, Losef had a gun so i called the police they told me that they couldn't go over there if if i hadn't seen a gun and i hadn't seen it after speaking with the police mary said that she had tried to call ted at least 20 times between 3 and 8 p.m. every time the line was busy at last mary got through but no one answered she decided to call the police again Within the hour, police had found Ted's body. They suspected that Ted had killed himself. The discovery of a note in an upstairs bedroom uh, blistered their conclusion. However, to Mary, it was the first of several alarming, several, several alarming things. During the testimony, she said, "I always thought that this was that note on the shirt." cardboard was kind of strange because I had been ironing Dr. Losev's shirts for a long time and I always used a hanger. I never used a shirt cardboard. And she stated she stared at Ted's body. The housekeeper said that in her testimony she realized that something else was wrong. When I, when I last saw him, he was wearing brown pants and a kind of a mustard colored shirt. And now he had a gray pants and a dress shirt. And the whole time that I worked there, after Dr. Losev died, I never once saw those brown pants and that mustard-colored shirt that he was wearing the last time I saw him. Ted rarely drank. A week later, she found odd stains on a bedspread in the guest room. Wilda told Mary that... Uh, it was vomit from the dogs who had been sick the night before. However, Mary remembers the dogs being in the kennel at that time. Later, when she washed the bed sheets or the bedspread, the areas where the supposed dog vomit was had completely uh, disintegrated. Ted's mother, Zell, said that she was convinced that a crime had occurred. After hearing the housekeeper's many, er, house, after hearing the housekeeper's many stories, I knew there was foul play, and something terrible had happened to Ted. And that I had found, I find out what, in 1978, four years after her son's death, Zell finally won a legal battle to have Ted's body exhumed for an autopsy. The pathologist found clear evidence that Ted had suffered a violent vomit vomiting spell moments before his death. According to forensics, Dr. Ivering wrought, there should have been vomits, vomitous 
vomits on his or vomit on his clothing, his face, and perhaps on the inside of the car. Why wasn't it there? This certainly strongly suggests to me that this vomiting occurred someplace other than in the car. And there were a number of other um, things that had never been explained, but that verily strongly move away, strongly move away from the the whole thought of suicide. This, until proven otherwise, is a homicide. Fueled by the autopsy results, Zale pieced together a theory explaining her son's death. She believes that it was premeditated murder and that Ted was assaulted soon after Wilda and the housekeeper left the house. She thinks that the people who killed Ted were close to Wilda because they knew that the, that the back door would be open. The autopsy also indicated that Ted had been involved in a struggle. Zell said that she believes he was overpowered by at least two men who forced poison down his throat. Ted was definitely fighting, fighting for his life, according to the doctors. Somebody took the phone off the hook after they had made sure he was dead. Then they cleaned him up, and then they put his gray dress shirt on him. Then they put him in the garage to make room for his car, or clean the garage to make room for his car. Then they had to open the gates to put his car into the garage, carry his dead body into the garage, close the door, and then go out and close the gates. Then they went back into the house again, I think, and put the receiver back on the hook. All afternoon, the housekeeper had been getting busy signals when she tried to call Ted. Zell believes that hanging up the phone was prearranged signal from the killers to Wilda that their job was done. After eight years after Ted's eight years after Ted's death in March 1982, the Los Angeles County Coroner reopened the case. A witness told authorities that the so-called suicide note had indeed been written by Ted. But the witness also revealed that Ted wrote the message two years before his death after an argument with Wilda. The coroner's inquest ultimately ruled that Ted's death was a homicide. But on May the 1st, 1983, before police could, have, could investigate, Ted's wife, Wilda, died of a drug and alcohol overdose. Now investigators are at a standstill on the case. Someone they believe may have gotten away with murder. For every mystery, someone, somewhere, that knows the truth, perhaps, that someone is listening. Perhaps, it's you. Thank you for joining me on this episode of Deadline. I hope you enjoyed these three stories of unsolved mysteries. Uh, we will definitely be doing more of those later on. Uh, not too sure yet what kind of what we're going to do this next time uh, or for this next Sunday. Um, I'm working on scripts, trying to get better at reading scripts. I usually don't like reading them. I like to go with first comes to my mind. 
but I'm trying to get used to reading these scripts, especially when it comes to cases like this, because I can't, um, it's kind of hard to remember all these cases and the details. Now again, these were actually, uh, when it comes to like the ones I read today, uh, these particular stories were not my doing. I just reread exactly, for the most part, word for word, what they said on the actual TV show for those cases on that that particular episode. Uh, the transcript, I should say, or dialogue. Anyway, um, so all these stories, for the most part, are from unsolved.com, which is Unsolved Mysteries website, which will be down in the description of the of of this episode so by all means go and check them out I'll definitely do more of these I like reading other people's dialogues because I'm really not that good at writing my own dialogues um, like when I do certain things like that if I do write a dialogue um, what I usually do is I'll do my investigating and I'll take other people's dialogues to a certain extent okay let me state that right now to a certain extent and I'll take it from different places and I'll put them together and basically combine them together so it sounds like what I'm reading is from one source when it's from multiple sources but anyway um, we'll definitely cover more stories like this for sure uh, I think with the unsolved mysteries we relive the tales I'll leave that as its own thing I will definitely do more relive the tales I, it's kind of fun to me but also I think I'll do more podcasts dealing with cold cases uh, true crime because uh, it seems like every time I do something like this I get more hits on my podcast and as I've stated before I usually try to stay away from that I try to stay in my horror genre which I know even then that's still considered horror but uh, it's because there's so many podcasts out there that focus on true crime so why would anyone go and see mine but or listen to mine but anyway so seems like I get way more hits on that so I'll probably focus a little more on that anyways thank you for joining me join me next Sunday again for more creepy stuff maybe we'll go back into I'll probably give it a break on unsolved for this next week and we'll do it for the following or something but we'll definitely do a cold case follow or something anyway join me next week Thank you for listening. I'm out.